today uh, I am beginning the first of a two-part series called Faith and Friendship. And we'll be looking together at the subject of same-sex relationships in society and in church. Let me say at the beginning that this is a two-part series. So today you only get half a message. Okay? And the second half will be next week. And I don't know even if in two weeks I will cover everything you might want to talk about. But I want to say that we're going to put the two messages together. So if you're, if you're not here next week, do get the recording and listen to it. And the recording will probably put the two talks together. So it'll be one, be one file for both talks together. So this subject that we're discussing of same-sex relationships um, has been talked about a great deal in the last couple of years. Uh, last year, leading into this year, the politicians in the UK have debated and changed the definition of marriage. So marriage now includes same-sex as well as heterosexual uh, couples. Um, I was thinking the other day, I was watching, a, catching up on some television programmes, my favourite TV shows, having been away over the summer for a month with Bible weeks and, uh, and holidays, etc. And I noticed, actually, in all of them, there was a same-sex couple as part of the story. I know that's like a tiny thing, but I just, I just noticed that's a change. I think that's a change that's probably happened in the last couple of years. Society and broadcast media have changed how they're portraying the people of society. If you followed any of the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Russia last year, you know there was controversy surrounding the Russian government's laws uh, against homosexuality, that it's, it's a criminal offence, and they, they also said that applied to the Olympics, so various church leaders and uh, sorry, various politicians and dignitaries uh, didn't attend the opening and, and the closing of the Winter Olympics because they didn't agree with the Russian government's uh, stance on that. Over Christmas, so last year, Christmas um, last year, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man called Alan Turing. He's, he's a hero of mine. I'm a bit of a mass geek and I spent a whole year at university studying Turing machines. They're really, really boring, but he's a brilliant man. Um, but he received at Christmas a, a pardon for his crime of homosexuality, for which he was imprisoned and actually received medical treatment to do with that. And he received a pardon because of that. Sports stars, I think uh, this year and last year, we've seen an increase in sports stars in this country and in the US uh, coming out as gay, so uh, Ian Thorpe, the swimmer, and over the summer as well in, in entertainment, uh, Vicky Beechin, the Christian musician and singer, um, she came out um, as well. The point I'm trying to make is this. It feels like everywhere has had the discussion about same-sex relationships except your church. And I think the most important thing I want to say today is that that's the thing we need to change. We need to engage with the discussion ourselves, and the church, I think, needs to do a better job of engaging with that discussion in society, if that discussion is still open. Now, I recognise, even in this room, there will be a full spectrum of opinions, okay? And that's okay. You are probably sitting next to somebody who doesn't have exactly the same opinion on this subject as you. 
And if they do, well, they'll probably disagree with you on some other topic as well. The point is, in any group of people, there will be a diversity of opinions. And there is a diversity of opinions on this subject in the church at large and in our church. And that's okay. Also, your age probably means you're more likely to be into into one perspective on this subject than another perspective. And the point I want to make is that actually that makes it even more important that we engage with talking to other people in our church and in society about their thoughts and ideas on this subject. And to do that, we all need to talk to people, not just the people like us who hold the same and similar opinions to us and have got there from the same journey and the same perspective and through the same methodology, but we need to be able to, with respect and honesty, speak to and listen to people who hold a very different point of view on this subject from us. Now, I think Christians are very nervous about talking about this subject. In fact, I, I flagged up more than a year ago that we would talk about this at G2, and it's taken me until now to actually feel the confidence to talk about it. I don't think I would have felt comfortable talking about it last term. I needed time to think about what we would say and how we would approach this subject. It might be that Christians are nervous about this because it involves talking about sex, and uh, that always produces either a titter or an embarrassment or a Kind of, you know, is that something we talk about when we've come to do divine worship and to come uh, uh, to worship together as Christians? I know many church leaders are nervous about this subject. They're afraid of speaking publicly about it. I spoke to a number of church leaders over the summer at the different events that are at who tell me they are not going to speak about it because they're afraid to. They're afraid either of what the congregation will think or they're afraid of what the society or uh, community um, will think about it. They're afraid of being labelled as as either liberal or homophobic, uh, either of which possibly puts them into an extreme where some will look down on them significantly. I know churches that have talked about this in their leadership and have decided we will not speak about this publicly in our church because the issue is, is too hot for them to touch. So they're, they're going to deprive their church of the opportunity of a good way of discussing it, certainly in terms of the Sunday context and looking at preaching, that kind of thing. They're not going to engage with that opportunity because of their fears about what that might involve. I know that the churches that have taken the opposite view, for example, Soul Survivor, a, a youth, a very large youth camp, um, Camp, probably not the right word, very rough, youth gathering. Um, help me out, come on. Uh, in the UK, uh, they talked about it a great deal over um, the summer, Soul Survivor. Some people I know are changing or hiding their views on this subject because the pressure is too much for them. It's, it's not just that they're afraid, it, it, it's just too much pressure for them, and they just want the issue and the discussion to go away. Some I know are afraid that Christianity will be defined and polarised on this single issue, and it's as if this single issue then becomes the most important thing that people think of when you say to them, 
church or Jesus. They think, okay, it's the gay issue. And that's top of the list. And they don't, they're afraid of that and they don't want that, so they want to avoid it. I spoke to one church leader who said this to me. I wrote it down. It feels like we are all slowly becoming the vicar of Dibley. God's church is being redefined as just nice, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. Now, this is a complex discussion, and it's very high stakes. But it is, as I've already said, a discussion I think we need to be able to have. And I think the church has a distinctive and vital contribution to bring to this debate. For us to hold back is to deprive the others and ourselves of that vital part of the conversation. This was made home, came home to me when I heard a, a quote from David Cameron, the Prime Minister, where he said this, the church needs to get with the programme. <laughs> so is that how it works? There's like a programme that, who decides that? Is it him? Is it democracy? Is it just politics? Is it the media? Is it the loudest voice? Is that how the programme's decided and then the church has to get involved in that and follow that? I think the church has to engage with its understanding of what it is and why it exists and from that work out what it thinks and what it has to say on this subject. Now before your heart sinks into depression about this big issue, let me tell you this. There is always a big issue between church and society. Okay? There, there always is, there always has been and there probably always will be. Here's just a few. Last year was women's leadership, okay? Can men and women, can women be as involved in the leadership of the church, particularly the Church of England, in the same way, with the same equality as men? So that was the one last year. That was the one that was in the newspapers. That was one, the one discussed on the political debates, etc. And uh, I was glad to be involved in the change in that that means we will have women bishops um, sometime very soon. Two weeks ago, when we started back from our summer break, um, we looked at the big issue in AD 60. Can you remember what it was? From Galatians 2 and Acts 15. Do you have to be circumcised in order to truly follow Jesus? For half of the Gentile church, that was a very important, big issue. Okay, you can remember what the answer was? The answer was no. But you must remember the poor. That was their big issue. In the third century in North Africa, when the churches were uh, oppressed by uh, invading armies, and some recanted of their faith and were safe, and others said, no, we are Christians who follow Jesus, and so fathers and sons were killed. And then when the armies left and the church kind of came back together, their big issue was, can we still worship together? Those who... Fariz said, oh, I don't really follow Jesus at the moment, and you're fine. And those who paid a high price to follow Jesus, that was their big issue. In the 1980s in South Africa, it was can black people and white people worship together in the same place. For Martin Luther, a, a monk in the 16th century, it was, can, should you read the Bible for yourself? We had about 95 big issues, but that, that was the main one that he brought. And, it, and it's possible that next year there will be another different big issue. There probably won't be. But in a few years, eventually, 
that there will be another big issue that's between church and society that the church needs to engage with. Now, I love marriage. I love being married. I love the fact that I'm a priest, so I get to be involved in many people's weddings. Um, I, I absolutely love that. It's one of the highlights of my job. And I can't today give the full apologetic for what I think is a Christian view of marriage. So we might have to do that in a further talk that follows along. But we, we maybe have time for some highlights. We had a whole series on marriage uh, last time. And, and one of the big ideas that Miriam shared with us in that series was that we are a society that is obsessed with seeing marriage as about us. When actually marriage is first and foremost about God and following God. It's more about what does God want than what do we want to get out of it. I recognise that there has been a fairly, not totally, but a fairly consistent view of marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman for most of society and history, and certainly through the history of the church and the Jewish nation. It's, it's the natural biology of our sexual organs, which leads to children being born and there being more people. And that's not the case for every marriage between a man and a woman. Some may not want to have children or might not be able to, but it is, it is normative that it's that relationship which is fruitful in children being born. In the scripture, marriage is, is held as important not to be looked at lightly, but because it reflects something precious about the relationship between God and the church. So it's an, it's an important thing to God about saying who he is and how he relates to people. Not something necessarily that can be amended or, or, or changed by the will of a society. And marriage is first brought to us almost from the very beginning of, of the Bible in the book of Genesis. It goes back to very origins of who we are. Now I also reckon there are, recognise there are challenges with what the Bible has to say on this subject. The verses that might be quoted against same-sex relationships. Uh, many of the biblical texts that, that speak against homosexuality uh, are, are either to do with something of promiscuity or, or to do with adultery. So it's very hard to see them as separate from their context. For example, the practice of what Roman soldiers, married Roman soldiers that went off to war and practices they would get up to, or the, the Greek culture in which older men mentored younger men and, and some forms of sexual relationship was sometimes involved in that. It's possible merely the Bible is speaking against that precise thing and not the general subject. But it's, it's hard to see it as just that alone. I know those, including Christian lead, leaders, that have written about um, in favour of same-sex relationships being affirmed within the life of the Church of Highlighted Justice, which I think is a really important part of the discussion. But we also need to recognise that Jesus never spoke really about our lives in that way. And he dis defined following him as laying down everything, letting your life die, and then following him. 
So we're called to a, a following of Jesus that has a, a, a radical leaving of things that we may want or desire or may be very precious or close to our hearts. We haven't time to do all the things. I just want, I want it's, it's a complicated and high stakes discussion. And we all need to engage with it. And we need to help each other understand this better. My own view is that marriage, I think, is between a man and a woman. But I also felt very strongly to support civil partnerships in terms of in a society where people don't necessarily want to say, what, what does the Bible say about that? I think civil partnerships brings uh, fairness and, and justice and equality to society in a positive way. I've had long discussions with friends who are gay about this. Um, I've got friends who don't follow Jesus who are gay. I've got friends who are not sure if they're following Jesus who are gay. I've got some friends who are full-on Christians um, who are gay. I've talked to a whole spectrum of people about their views, people who are gay, um, about that. Somebody asked me, actually, how many friends have you got who are gay? And I, I reckon I've got 12 um, but I haven't asked all my friends if they're gay or not. So I, I probably don't know. Like, maybe the number's much higher. I don't know. Maybe I should just put something on Facebook and see what happens. No, I probably won't do that. I've got some friends who would say when they were younger, they, lived, they were gay and they lived a gay lifestyle. And, and uh, two of those friends I know who are now married. So they're, they're men married to a woman. But that wasn't their previous lifestyle. But they feel good about that. Uh, I've got a fr- another friend who's in a same, the same situation as that who would say he's married, he's a man married to a woman, um, and he still feels sexual attraction to men and women in the same way that I might say as a married man, uh, if I see a beautiful woman I can recognise her beauty and then I have, then it's important that I'm moral and disciplined about not just what I do, but even what I think. So he would say, I see the beauty in men and women equally. I feel that sexual attraction um, to both. I've got, another, I've got two friends who um, have lived a life where they've recognised that they're both in their 60s now, and they would say they are following Jesus, and they are gay, and so they believed that meant they were called to live a celibate life. In fact, I was chatting to one of them over the summer, so he's, like, he's, nearly, he's retiring now, and he's lived all his life celibate because he's a gay man and he believes that following Jesus, that meant he therefore wouldn't ha- doesn't have sex. And he said to me, have I done the right thing? That's a high stakes question. Is he a hero or a fool for how he's lived his life? And he's still trying to think that through. Now we're talking about same-sex relationships and I, in a way, want to place that discussion in a bigger realm of what I want to suggest is human brokenness. Now stay with me on this. I recognise in a way how offensive it is potentially to even say that or how arrogant it might be for me to say that 
that I'm placing the idea of same-sex relationships within a bigger context of brokenness. Or even connecting the idea of same-sex relationships with the Christian idea of, of sin, which means not following Jesus. In fact, sin is, in a sense, any way in which we as creatures fail to wholeheartedly follow and worship God. Now, before I lose friends in the room, let me even the field a little bit. Because when I talk about human brokenness, I include you all in that. And I include myself in it. In fact, there is no one here who's not broken as a human person. And there's no one here who hasn't sinned. There's no one here who doesn't sin. And I don't think there's anyone here who hasn't, in some shape or form, got some broken sexuality. Let me give you some examples. Uh, I speak to people most weeks who struggle with pornography and masturbation. It's broken sexuality. Um, Last year I visited some people in prison and talked to them about why they were in, well they talked to me about why they were in prison and they were in prison because of their broken sexuality. People struggle with sexual lust or, or fantasy. And Jesus said, if you think it, it, it's in the same category as doing it. I think there is a difference, but he's saying it's not like think whatever you like, but just be good about what you do. Even what we think is in the realm of our moral brokenness. Of course, there's things like adultery. But I think there are other things like our body image and how we have been configured by our brokenness and the opinions of others and and the bombardment of society's opinions to in order to see our bodies in a certain way, to imagine that our bodies need to look a certain way in order to be sexually attractive or in order for us to be beautiful or to be wanted in a relationship Um, and that that has for some people that has caused them to be immensely broken as a human being because they're caught up in a messed up society that communicates a certain image to them I think human brokenness includes sex outside marriage which the the old fashioned word the bible uses for that is fornication Um, and uh, obviously there are other issues like prostitution, and of course divorce. And God says in the Old Testament that he hates divorce. He doesn't say he hates divorced people. He doesn't say the people are hated by him. But he says he hates divorce. Why might God hate divorce? Well, divorce produces massive brokenness and is is about brokenness. And I think sexual brokenness and human brokenness takes us to an uncomfortable aspect of understanding sin. Because the polite view of sin is that sin is merely free choices that we make, good or bad. I'll give you an example. You're walking down the street, you're in a rush, you're trying to get from A to B, so welcome to my life. I'm always in a rush in the car, bike, walking through York. You're in a rush and you're going down the pavement and in front of you is a slow granny. Um, we'll make her blind. So she's got one of those sticks. So she's like covering the whole pavement. She's got, 
Should we get broken leg? She's got a limp. Let's make her a bit plumpy. So she's, cover she's covering the whole pavement. She's moving slowly. And if you were a horrible person like me, you would, no, I wouldn't be, but I might be, you would be frustrated about the fact that she is preventing you from getting where you want to go to. If I shouted something like, come on, lady, get a move on, why would that be unfair? And the answer would be, she can't help it. That's the way she is. Now, there's a natural fairness in that illustration, as comical as it is, but sin like the Bible talks about sin in even deeper ways. We touched on it last year when we did our series, Beginnings. Do you remember the series? And in the first one, we looked at creation. God made the world, and it's beautiful and good. First truth, first great truth of the Bible. And then we, part two was, I did that one, the second great truth of the Bible, that the whole world and all the people in it are broken from the very beginning. So our brokenness is not merely the free choices that we make, but in includes all that we inherit as humans, as a race, and all, the, all that's about us as individuals. I'll give you another example. In my family, all the men of the generation older than me were alcoholics to one degree or another. My, my late father was an alcoholic, and that affected a significant part of his life. Um, who knows quite why? Is it nature or nurture? Is it in their DNA? I think there's evidence for, for that kind of thing. Um, or was it something common to their upbringing that shaped and moulded them in such a way that that's something that happened in each of their lives? I recognise in myself something of an inheritance in that area. Question. Am I free to excuse myself from the consequences of that? Am I free to say, that's just the way I am? Or do I need to accept, that is the way I am, I am still, I need to take that and everything else that I am and still endeavour to follow Jesus. What I can't do is say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but all the things that I think are beyond my control or choice, I'll take off the table, they're not up for debate, because that's just the way I am. And then the what's left is what's up for debate about following you. This is hard, because sexual identity is a very deeply rooted part of who all of us are. Our identity is very connected to our gender. It's not the whole thing about us. It's not what defines us. God's not, not looking around the room going straight, straight, gay, straight, straight. He's not, he's not dividing us in that way or by any other way in which God might separate us. He's going around the room saying, I love you, 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 I love you. That part of our identity is not the biggest thing about us. It's a very important thing, but it's not the biggest thing. We're going to pause, I'm going to pause, and you're going to get a chance to have a chat with the people on your table. And I want to give you a pastoral situation that I want you to talk about. We normally call this table talk, and normally when we plan table talk, we just go for something easy, okay? 
So I just need to say today, today is exactly the opposite. If you feel you don't want to participate in this, that's fine. Or if, like me, you're someone who prefers more to think and then you, you'll ponder it later, that's fine. If you feel you can talk about it, that would be great. Maybe others on your table want to listen to it. And I've deliberately chosen something that I think might be really hard to talk about. Okay, so I just need to say that. So don't come up at the end and say, that, that was a really nasty one to talk about. Okay, I've deliberately chosen something that's going to be hard for us to talk about. I need to tell you a story. About 16 years ago, I was a prayer counsellor at a big Bible week. So, and I was in charge of an area. So there was like a team of prayers. And then if they couldn't um, work out what to pray for somebody, then they sent the person um, to me. And this chap got sent to me. And I can't remember what, what the reason he came to me was. It was to pray for something. Um, that's not really part of the story. Because as he, as he chatted to me, um, he told me that he was living with his sister in a sexual relationship. So this is, this is a man living with a woman in a sexual relationship. Um, I didn't actually know what to say, so I, I, was just, I, said, I just asked him to talk to me. I said, tell me more, tell me about the situation. And in a way, I, I thought he might tell me a brokenness story. I thought he might tell me we just met and fell in love and then we found out that we were related through some, you know, maybe adoption or something like that. I thought he was going to tell me something like that. Or I thought he was going to tell me that the, the home they came from was incredibly broken and that's what kind of meant they were in this situation. Actually, he said, we, we grew up together, we were a happy family, our parents were together, they loved us. And then they both moved away from home, from the city where they were, to, an, to another city um, to live for work. And um, they were sharing together, and their relationship changed from being brother and sister to being the equivalent of man and wife living together, and they were having sex with each other. Most of their friends thought they were married because they shared the same surname. So they didn't have any external sort of scrutiny, and people received them as a, as a couple. So they had a social community and neighbours who saw them as a married couple because they had the same surname and um, I also thought he might just tell me um, that, that he wanted the relationship to change but really what he was saying was this is a great relationship it's a relationship that blesses both of us we, we both feel better because of it we both feel like we've found someone really special he described to me, he said I feel like I've found someone with whom I have a unique connection. And I said, I think that's because she's your sister. And he said, no, I, I think I've found the person that we're meant to be with. Now, I don't know any more of his story, and I, I didn't even know what advice to give him, and I think I just prayed for him and the other thing that he responded to. And I, I've never met him since, and I can't remember his name, so I'm in no way breaking his confidentiality because um, he won't be listening to this, and uh, I don't know where he is. Now, I want you to talk about that situation. And I've got a question for you on the screen, which is this. What would you have said to him, or if you'd seen them as a couple, what would you have said to them in the situation that you've just heard? Okay, this is a hard one, I know. It's awkward. We're going to spend at least five minutes, maybe ten minutes, just chatting at our table. So 
Um, some music's going to come on. Say hi to the people on your table. And off you go. <laughs> conversation is very different when you um, speak with a friend and share what you think. Um, I've been interested to hear what some, well, look, we won't collect feedback, whether one of you talked about Cain and Abel or in, uh, anyway, we'll pick that up next time. Okay, we've only got a few more minutes left and uh, we are merely halfway into the things I'm prepared to say and I think we've hardly touched the discussion and I repeat what I said at the beginning which is uh, I think our greatest need is to talk about this in a really Christian way, which means we are honest and respectful, we want to listen, we want to share, and we want to understand. And I think this subject shapes massively what kind of church we want to be. As I think about this issue and other issues to do with church, it can kind of polarise the types of church that we can be or that there are even, that there are. I think there are at least two extremes on this debate. Over at kind of on the left, uh, you've got the liberal extreme. And the liberal extreme would be a church that's for everyone, but where the identity of the church, therefore, is merely the collective of what's there. Uh, I kind of picture it as songs of praise, you know, at its worst, but you probably love songs of praise, so insert your own example. Um, on the extreme right, we've got uh, a church that knows what it believes, and only those who fit it may come and participate in the journey and to be in the club. Like one church leader I met um, over the summer who said to me, there are no gays in my church. And I thought, well, of course there's not. They've met you. <laughs> Like they obviously know they're not welcome to even set foot in the door. So, uh, of course, you will just be a club of people who are deluded into thinking um, that you all are doing the same thing and living the same life and it's all neat and tidy. I think we need to be a church in the centre. And I think that's what we need to learn better about. And I think that means a church for everybody. It means for all of us that we need to be a church that's able to have the accusation labelled against Jesus, labelled against us, that we were friends of sinners. Now, remember, I told you I'm a sinner, so I want you to be friends of sinners because I need some friends. So we can't be friends with people who aren't sinners because that means it's a church of zero people. So we need to have that ethos at work within our church that says... We, we, ask, we don't ask questions in the invitation that we offer you to come and be part of what we're doing and to explore the journey. The invitation's for everyone. And I think because if you are a church to which everyone is invited, that means it will be a messy church. It will not be neat and tidy. If you want neat and tidy, have the ultra-conservative. Stand at the door and only let in people who look like you, who will agree with you 
and behave like you, and that will be neat and tidy. And I think the messy church, the church in the centre, is the one that's for everyone, and they're trying together to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Well, this talk needs to come to an end, and I just want to summarise and pray for us. It's only half the talk, so if I've missed out the thing you want to talk about, then maybe we'll talk about that next week. Um, I suspect even in two talks, we will only begin to talk about the questions that we need to ask. So I, we are dependent on each other to figure some of this stuff out. We've thought today about how this is such an important subject. If the church buries its head in the sand, then society will simply see the church as being utterly irrelevant, not just on this issue, but on every issue there is. So it's incumbent upon us to engage with this debate. And we have something distinctive and beautiful to bring to the discussion table. We need to overcome our personal awkwardness, whether that's talking about sex or whether it's just that this is an awkward um, subject or we're worried about what people might think or what kind of label they may put upon us, wherever we are, whatever that label may be, we need to not allow the fear of that and the awkwardness of that to prevent us from engaging with the discussion. And I think we need to push beyond just simplistic morality, the kind that maybe society at large might simply say, well, it's, it's, as, long, as long as it's like this, then it's okay. We need to be able to engage deeply with the truths that we have in Scripture and let those inform our discussion. And I think it affects the Christian view of marriage, which is something important in the New Testament in describing our relationship with God. So it's not a trivial discussion. Other discussions may, might be, but this is a discussion that has huge stakes. And it raises, as I've just said, a, the question of what kind of church God, we invite you into our lives more. And our prayer is that you will help us as a community to talk about this subject, to talk about you, to learn what we think ourselves, to listen well to others, and to do it in a way that shows respect and honour and devotion to you. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with each of us. Amen. Well, last Sunday we began a two-part series looking at the subject of same-sex relationships in church and society. So if you are here for the first time, um, welcome. You've come like kind of on a big Sunday, so please come back next week and see what we're doing next week as well. I said it was like a conversation that we needed to begin, and this discussion about same-sex relationships in society and in church is a very important one. It has high stakes, and it's one that I believe the church has a unique contribution to bring to the table. The, the church has probably held back from this conversation, and we talked about that last week. And you yourself may feel some nervousness or fear in engaging or talking about this conversation, whatever perspective you may come from, because it may put you at odds with others, or you may feel you, you have a different perspective or an unpopular 
point of view. We need to somehow push through that so that as a community we can talk about what we each think and feel and hear from one another. And the subject of same-sex relationships is particularly important in the church because the idea of marriage, pastorally and theologically, holds an important place in understanding our identity with God. So it's not a side issue, it's a very important issue. So that's why it's important to talk about it and that's why we need to give time to it. And as Sarah said, engaging with this discussion uh, asks us to consider what kind of church are we going to be. Uh, we recorded last week and we'll record this week and put the two together as a recording. So if you missed last week, you'll be able to uh, get it on our G2 podcast um, from um, Monday or Tuesday of next week. I'm very aware that we have only just begun to touch this discussion. And we certainly won't complete everything that everyone in the room would like to hear or talk about uh, on this topic. And the reality is, as I thought about this over the summer, I have deliberately picked the two things that I think we most needed to look at first. So I acknowledge, even by the end of today, we have an incomplete discussion. And my hope is that we can do... Uh, more in terms of talking in small groups, as some of you have done, and in other groups, within families, and that next term we can come back and uh, think more about that. And uh, I would love you to help me with that by emailing in. I would like to know from you, what do you want more discussion about? And it might not be something we do on Sunday, we may find another way of doing that, but please tell me, in light of where you've got to today on this important discussion... What more should we do? And we'll look at when we can do that. Some of that may be um, next term. In the room, we will inevitably have a full range of opinions. There'll be some who want to say same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage is fine. I'm okay with it. There'll be others who want to say same-sex relationships and same-sex marriages is not okay. And I'm not okay with it. And we talked a little bit about some of that last week. Uh, I think most people in the room will have mixed feelings. And last week I deliberately gave you a really hard discussion based on a, a true conversation I'd had many years ago with a brother who was in a, a married-like relationship with his sister. And I picked that in order to provoke us to get beyond our initial feelings and our initial uh, ideas about what we think on this subject. And if you were in that discussion and you, you, were, you were somehow torn between your views on same-sex relationships and then the, that topic that we talked about, the brother-sister relationship, then I would suggest that means there is more discussion and unpacking to do. If you, if you entered that conversation and it was, it was all clear to you, that's fine. But if, if, if you had some sense of awkwardness or uncertainty or unclarity in that discussion, then I think that means we need to talk about this relationship issue more. Well, that's my phone ringing. That's interesting. And it may be that we have something of a conflict of interest. And the, com the conflict of opinion, rather, the conflict of opinion... 
is not just within the room. It's not just that you may disagree with the person next to you. It may be that, like me, you have mixed views as well. So my perspective is, I see one truth spoken about in the Bible, with some clarity and some lack of clarity, but I see that. And then I see another truth in the lives of gay people that I know. And it's a challenge for me to bring them together. In fact, that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. And I'm doing different things to, to help me think and learn and work out how I feel about this subject. And so it may be that, like me, you, you feel that mixed opinion, you have a mixed feeling about it. You can't put yourself simply in one group or another and say, that's my settled opinion on this process. And there's probably another group of people who would just like me to tell you what to think. And uh, the problem is, I can't do that because A, we need to figure this out together, and B, I'm still thinking about some of this myself, so we need to all engage with this subject. Well, today I want us to take a half step back from the precise discussion about same-sex relationships to think about how we can be a church which is both inclusive to people and passionate about helping people to follow Jesus. And that's why I gave this series the title Faith and Friendship, because I wanted us to explore through this one issue, the bigger issue of how we walk through <coughs> faith commitment to Jesus and relational commitment to our friends who may or may not know Jesus or may be discovering Jesus. And last week we looked at two extremes of how that can uh, pan out in church life. On the one side we've got kind of a, a, the liberal perspective where liberality sets the tone. So that's a church where the welcome is generous, but the generosity of the welcome sort of sets the tone of the church. So in a sense, that becomes a, a, a liberal gathering. I'm not using that word in a, in a negative way. I'm just trying to describe something. It, it, it in a sense, can be a church where um, the individual opinion is the most important thing. So that would be like a liberal perspective. On the other side, we've got a conservative perspective. And that's where discipleship defines the welcome. It's as if there's a sign on the door saying, if you fit this criteria and you can answer yes to these questions, then you're welcome to be in our club. I think both of those extremes that I've caricatured are unhelpful. But it's easy for us to fall into those. And I know church leaders and churches that, in a sense, are heading towards one of those because this is such a difficult subject for them to engage with. My desire is that we are the church that's in the centre and that we walk that central path of both being genuinely welcoming to all people, whoever they are, and also genuinely passionate about helping people to discover and follow Jesus Christ, which is the mission statement that we adopted for G2 a number of years ago. And this is inevitably a harder option. If we want an easy life, let's pick one of the other two. Both are much easier to manage, uh, have less stress for those that lead it, and you'll get less flack and criticism from others. 
The, the, the one in the middle, I think, is the hardest one to walk out. But I think it's the one that we most should be committed to doing. Well, we're going to do a bit of chatting at our table. And um, uh, here's a Bible verse from John 1.16, which says this. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay? There's two ideas in there. I've slightly stylized them, but there's an idea of grace and there's an idea of truth. And I want us at our tables to talk about those two words. And the question I'm going to ask you is this. Which of those do you feel you are instinctively most drawn to? There's not a right or wrong answer, okay? So it's not a trick question. I'm not going to ask half of you to leave or anything like that. Which of you are, are you most naturally or instinctively drawn to? Perhaps you're drawn to the idea of being a grace giver. You, 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 you loved it when I said that the, the generous and open welcome. You, you loved the idea of loving people in Jesus' name. In fact, somebody said to me this week, my, my evangelism style is I just want to love people and then I hope they'll decide to follow Jesus. So is that, is that you? Are, you, are you? are you in your heart a grace giver? Or maybe you're a truth teller. And you're instinctively drawn to the idea of telling truth. After all, the word of God's word has power. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know the value of truth, or the importance of telling truth. Okay? So there's no right or wrong. I'll tell you what I am first. Okay? I'm, I'm a, a die-hard truth teller who, over the last few years, has warmed up a lot in grace. Okay? And some of you who know me know I'm much more of a grace giver than I was even a few years ago, okay? So that's my confession. Phew, that's out of the way. So, uh, you're going to chat at your tables. Uh, we're going to put some music on. You've got two or three minutes just to say uh, which of those you're most drawn to. Grace giving or truth telling. Off you go. Okay, let's have a little poll, okay? Some of you have been bad and you've said both. Okay, you're going to have to pick one. We're going to have a show of hands. I'd just be really fascinated to see uh, what the culture of the room is. So if you reckoned you were uh, an instinctive grace giver, stick your hand up. Grace giver. Come on, guys. Okay, hands down. If you reckon you're more of a truth teller, stick your hand up. Ah, oh, there's more grace in the room. That's probably really good, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Well, today I want us to use just one idea, one pastoral uh, model, uh, uh, an idea of how we as people trying to follow Jesus can, when we find ourselves challenged in terms of the views of others around us. Um, and that can apply to our individual lives, it could apply to us as a church, it could apply to us in terms of church and society. And to do that, I want to draw some help from a great saint of old. And uh, the guy in question is uh, this fella. Anyone? Oh, it says on the screen, I was going to say. Anyone know who it is? Uh, this handsome man in front of you is Gregory the Great. Okay? Also, Pope Gregory I. The German reformer Martin Luther said he was the last good pope. Um, so I don't know if that, that puts him in a high position or not. 
Um, he was called the father of Christian worship. In fact, if you're a singer, you may have heard of Gregorian chants. Okay, Greg started that for you. Uh, some of the frameworks for communion services used in the Anglican and Catholic Church were, were authored and commissioned by him. He's the patron saint of musicians and singers and students and school teachers. So if you're any one of those, Greg's your guy, okay? Get yourself a little badge and stick it on your shirt. Gregory the Great wrote many things about uh, Christian life and, and ministry, letters and, of instruction to pastors. Uh, and one of his main works was the Cura Pastoralis, which literally just means pastoral care. It was a book of pastoral care. I think, I think six short volumes, maybe it was. And uh, he wrote in this letter some ideas about how do you do pastoral care in a church? How do you love people whilst at the same time helping them to get to know Jesus and to go deeper into Christian truth? How do you do it? Do you, like, do you, tell, do you just tell truth? Truth, 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 truth? Do you just do grace? Grace, 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 hope you figure it out. How do you do it? What, what, what model, what wisdom could we draw from in order to better understand how to do that? And the paraphrase of what he wrote would be this. He said, we need to look at Jesus, look at the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. And what we'll notice if we look at the stories of Jesus in the Gospels is that Jesus dealt with people very differently. You cannot distill from the the recorded encounters of Jesus like a model of how to lead people to Christ or how to move forward in their journey of discovering and following Jesus. Jesus seemed to treat people differently. So we'll do a bit of that now. And I'm taking a bit of a wild experiment because I'm going to put myself into your hands. We're going to talk about uh, some stories that you want to raise. So what, what I'm going to ask you for in a minute is just to shout out a story involving Jesus that's from one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. And it needs to be one where Jesus is, uh, it needs to be like an ethical story, okay? Where Jesus is dealing with an ethical situation. So um, maybe a situation that involves sin or disagreement with somebody. So not one of the parables, but an actual story involving Jesus. There are about 25 of them in the, in the Gospels uh, that are recorded for us. So we'll, we'll do a few of these together, and then like for homework, you can do the rest, okay? And then if you all write it down and hand it in, and I'll, no, 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 okay. We'll do some of them. Okay, so someone give me, the, give me the first one that comes to mind. Woman at the well. Okay, we had two. Uh, ben, what was yours? Woman at the well. Woman at the well. And the woman caught in adultery. Okay, both in John's Gospel. Do you want to grab a Bible? Come on, you're working with me. Grab a Bible. Okay. Do we all know the story of the woman caught in adultery? Shall I read it quickly? It's a cracker, okay? John 8, uh, let's pick it up, verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the acts of adultery. 
They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this as a question to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. They kept questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, If any of one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the sand. Prizes for anyone that's got any ideas about what he was writing. Uh, at this, those who heard began to go away one, <coughs> one at a time. The old ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay. Um, so we can make this interactive, all right? So don't be shy. Uh, it's like a play, okay, this story. It's like a play. First thing that jumps out at me, I've scanned through some of these this week to, have a, to get my mind thinking about them. The first thing that occurs to me is this. Who's missing from the story? The bloke. The, the bloke. Okay. That's interesting, isn't it? We are being presented with a story of a woman who's committed adultery, um, but you probably all know it takes two. So there's a, there's a bloke in some marital or single situation who has escaped our story. Okay? Uh, where is he? Like, is, he in the, is he in the crowd of men? I don't know. I'm just wondering. Uh, what, what's the relationship of the other men to, to that man? Another question. Um, how did they know she was committing adultery? Like, it might have been just like, you know, information received or something. Or was there something a bit odd going on? Like, was people snooping on others or something peculiar like that? Um, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do first? I would say he showed, them, he showed the, the group of men their respect in the sense that he bent down and he kind of almost ignored them. Brilliant. So he's been presented by some good men are presenting a bad woman, but he engages with them very differently. So he identifies himself positively with the woman and negatively with the men. I mean, the first thing is he probably saves her life, doesn't he? She's about to get stoned to death, potentially. So he intervenes in such a way that he literally saves her life. Um, what, what does he do next? Any thoughts about writing on the sand? Any thoughts? I, I don't know. But any of you have got any thoughts? What was he writing in the sand? Commandments. Ten commandments, maybe? Ten commandments? Maybe he's writing there what the sins of the... the what have they been up to? Any, this is good ideas. Any other thoughts? I once got that as a question on an alpha course. I think he was just doodling to stop getting angry. Doodling? To stop getting angry. To stop getting angry. Brilliant. Okay. Um, what does he say to the men? 
So he says to them, if any of you is without sin, throw the first <coughs> stone. Uh, I don't know from the language whether he's, he's specifically hinting at sexual sin. Like he, as the, the most extreme could be this. If any of you aren't an adulterer, then by all means throw a stone. Otherwise, you might be on dangerous ground before, before God's law. Or it, it could have been as general as just saying, if any of you feels confident that you're so holy that you can, without in a clear conscience, pass judgment on this woman, then by all means throw the first stone. What, how does he engage with, with people? Does it, so Jesus speaks words. What, what, what's the framing of his words? Questions, brilliant. But Jesus had the right pain for asking. He was he answered often answered people's questions with questions. Um, I love I love that. And I'm, I mean, partly it was a sign of rabbis, but he he often forced people to think beyond the initial simplicity of the situation, doesn't he? Because he could have just quoted the you know they talked about Moses. He could have just quoted Bible verses and answered their question. But in a sense, he was, he was trying to get to, I don't know, something more important, something bigger. He was trying to get a better outcome out of the situation. So, first of all, he, he saves her life. Uh, then he, he says to her, um, does anyone condemn you? No, they don't. So, neither will I. And then what does he tell her? To change. So he says to her, now go and sin no more. So there's a great okay, so there's this there's a great pastoral model there, isn't there? First, first of all, he rescues her, that's her immediate need. He jumps into her life and he rescues her. Secondly, he says, I am Jesus and I am not condemning you, I am loving you. You're more important to me than these guys who are trying to end your life. But then he, so that's grace, and then he's, he brings some strong truth-telling. He says, you need to now go and not do this anymore. Okay, are you warming up? Come on, you, you're with me. Right, flip, oh, John A. Gregory the Great, once he does, to notice that Jesus' encounters with people were all completely different, as we've just seen from from the three that we've looked at, and there are many more. Uh, And I think this is like a cornerstone of of how pastoral life in a church and the the leadership development in a church should work. It's as if we all need to learn a language of both grace and truth, which Jesus models to us. Jesus deals with the woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, the paralytic, uh, and other stories. He deals with each of those people very differently. I, I presume in each encounter, he held the same values because of who he was. But it's as if he understood the need to engage with people with different timings, on different subjects, and in different ways. Jesus is like the doctor who's the physician of our souls, and he tailors the medicine and remedy to the presenting condition. He sees what our immediate need is and what our greatest need is and what our ultimate 
need is. He doesn't give you a, a paracetamol for cancer. He doesn't amputate your leg if you've got a headache. Jesus is the master physician who more than anybody understands what our needs are. And I think he adopted the approach of dealing with the person that was in front of him as a person made in the image of God. And a person who was on a a journey of discovering what it meant to follow God. Here's a few things that we've already talked about. First of all, Jesus is the truth teller. He is the one that tells the truth. You can't love people without being willing to help them engage with God as a truth teller. Because real love wants people to meet the truth that's in Jesus. Jesus brings difficult truth. That first story, the woman caught in adultery, his parting words to her were were incredibly strong words. Go and do not sin like this ever again. He is a strong truth teller. And as I said last week, in a sense, my, my, my understanding of the church is that actually we are all in the same common position of needing Jesus to save us and change us in our lives. Here's what Matthew 16 says this. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all rights to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For the man who wants to save his life will lose it, but the man who wants to lose his life for my sake will find it. The gospel and the Jesus that we engage with, who brings word of incredible challenge into our life, is a powerful message, words of truth. And Gregory the Great, the Gospels that we've looked at, the stories that we've looked at just briefly today, tell us that Jesus is not afraid of telling people difficult words of truth and bringing strong challenges. But delivering truth is is an art. Um, Gregory the Great, in his book about pastoral care, says that pastoral care is like the art of arts. He said it's not a simple thing to learn. It's, it's, a, it's a complex thing that takes a long time to learn how Jesus is at work in somebody else's life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, German Lutheran pastor, said this, telling truth is not solely a matter of just moral character, but it's also a matter of correct appreciation of real situations and serious reflection on them. Where was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Oh, sorry. Slides are in order. And uh, telling truth needs wisdom as well. I don't know if you can see on the screen, the guy, both the guys have got this sign that says, God is angry with the wicked every day. And uh, this is not my photo, but I, a few months ago I saw somebody preaching, preaching in York, and they had a sign on that said exactly the same as that. And uh, I was on my lunch break, so I just sat down and I thought, I'll just watch to see how it goes, like, to see if it's a good way of doing it. So he's got his sign that says, God is angry with the wicked. And then um, he wasn't getting much trade, which didn't surprise me. And uh, then he started um, pointing at people going by and saying, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. Now, was he telling truth? Well, strictly speaking, he was. I mean, first of all, he's just quoting the Bible, although, you know, the emphasis is his. Big words, wicked. 
Um, and is, do, what, do I believe everyone's a sinner? Do I think I'm a sinner? Do I think everyone here is a sinner? Yes, I do. So he's tell, was he telling truth when he was telling people, you're a sinner? But was he saying it in a way that helped that truth to come home? Probably not. In fact, most of the people he pointed at seem to run away and disappear. And so Jesus is also a grace giver. And in contrast to the religious of his day, Jesus brought, brought great grace to people. If I want to help somebody get to know Jesus, I probably need to get to know them. I can't sort of deliver truth like a sort of fire and forget missile that sort of I shoot off and then it, it'll, it'll eventually reach there and explode and have its desired effect. We need to treat people with respect and dignity because they are a person made in the image of God. And unconditional love and transformation of lives are not things that we have to choose between because ultimately because unconditional love is transforming. People are made in the image of God and God loves them. We're going to come to an end and you'll remember at the beginning I said what we do next is, is for you to feed back to me and we'll look at some more next term and we're going to carry on having these discussions wherever that is in our cell groups or um, in families uh, hearing from one another. But where does that leave us at G2? I think a few things. Firstly, I think we should be more serious about all the things that the Bible cites as sin. And as I said last week, this is, this is a subject driven forward as topical by our culture. And it's easy for it to become the most important thing, because it's the thing that's being talked about. But the Bible highlights all sorts of ways in which we are broken or deficient or possibly failing to follow God. I mean, here's a list of just a few. Boasting, being unforgiving, lacking in mercy, fighting, being ungrateful, complaining, adultery, anger, divorce, drunkenness, envy, lying, pride, gluttony, blasphemy. More than 120 odd different types of sin and brokenness, even just in the New Testament, that are highlighted. And it's easy for us to put our focus on the ones that feel most topical or that present most. And I want to ask the question, are we as strong about all of those? About being honest and being true, about loving the poor, about not getting drunk or what we watch on television or the words that come out of our mouths. If we are to have the right to engage with any discussion about ethics, we have to treat all the ethics seriously. Otherwise, we just become like the horrible preacher guy who's just pointing his finger at others and criticising their lives rather than being willing to find out what's going on in his life. One of the things we're trying to figure out at G2 is, is how we do leadership. And leaders need in some shape or form to be able to uh, set an example in their following of Jesus. That's part of their role uh, in being uh, a leader. And that covers all sorts of different areas. Our view at the moment is that uh, if you're involved in a same-sex relationship, then we don't invite you to be one of the leaders in the church. But we also have all sorts of other conversations that go on. And in fact, within the leadership team, there are, all, there are constant ins and outs 
amongst that team to do with how we're doing in our lives for following Jesus. And you don't hear about them because we're, we're not seeking to embarrass anyone. Our goal is always to point people towards following Jesus. I think we need to be those who uh, have an open welcome at the door for people to come to church. And we need to be genuine about that. You need to be okay about everybody being invited to come to church. And that means we're not checking as people come in through the door how they're living their life, who they're having sex with, how they're spending their money, whether they're honest. Have you remembered the poor this week, sir? And, and any one of those other hundred things that the Bible might say, these are important questions. If we genuinely want to be welcoming, then we have to welcome uh, everybody and that welcome doesn't come with conditions attached. And we also need to be passionate about discovering and following Jesus. And so that means all those issues that aren't checked at the door are in the room open for discussion in our following of Jesus. Because if we want to follow Jesus, then he uh, includes himself into our lives. And Jesus, as we've looked in the Gospels, is strong on issues. And he's very intrusive into our lives. We might like that to say, this bit of my life is not open to scrutiny, but it's as if Jesus is nosy and he's willing to nose into all the cupboards of our life and say, I'm interested in looking at all these things, all these areas are open to me for discussion and invitation. And the last thing is this. I think we need to be patient. Issues drive us to be black and white. And let me tell you, my experience of following Jesus is this. He's been patient with me. Uh, it's taken a long time for me to get here, and then, gladly, you don't know the list of things I'm still working on in my life. Um, my wife will happily fill you in, I'm sure. Um, we are, I am still a work in progress but Jesus has been patient with me. And I think a church that's doing well also needs to find some, find some of that patience. Because unless it's been your experience, Jesus doesn't just come and go, and everything's sorted out. It's as if he picks the times and seasons when he speaks to us about things in our life. And things that we maybe aren't aware of or aren't focusing on, there come moments when Jesus puts his finger on that and speaks to us about it. And for some of our issues, we will live and die still learning how to follow Jesus in our lives.